Hi there, this is the Reverend Michael Lowry, pastor of East Congregational United Church of Christ in Concord, New Hampshire, and this is Love to Tell the Story. You know, one of the things that I have always loved about the Gospel according to John is how all very rich and multi-layered it is from beginning to end. For instance, take the story of how Jesus healed the blind man at the Pool of Siloam. Not only do we learn how this man was made to see for the first time in his entire life, as the story goes on, we discover how everyone else saw what happened. And in the process, we get insight into how we see Jesus as well. That's the subject of today's message, which is entitled, What Do You See? And it's based on that story I just mentioned from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 25. We begin, however, with a story of how we all tend to see things, even relatively small things, very differently from one another. One afternoon, some years ago now, Lisa and I were walking with some friends along Scarborough Beach, a beach that's on the coast of southern Maine and nearby to where we were living at the time. And as I recall, it was a beautiful spring-like day late in the winter, just about this time of year, in fact. And, and we were not alone that day in taking advantage of this wonderful chance to stroll up and down the shoreline and enjoy some fresh air and sunshine. I remember this day in particular because at one point along the way, we were passed by a man and a woman who were by all indications a couple. They were smiling, chatting, strolling hand in hand as they walked by us. The woman, she was young and attractive, probably in her 20s or thereabouts, and, and the man, well, let's just say he appeared to be quite elderly and was moving considerably slower than she was. Not that it mattered, because they were positively beaming as they happily made their way in the sand. Now, what was interesting about all this was that all of us who were walking in our party took notice of the two of them as they went by. But nobody said anything about it, at least at first. But finally, after a few minutes, one of our party made this comment. Did you see those two? Wasn't that cute? Walking hand in hand like that, so incredibly sweet. Now that's what I would call a real May-December romance. To which another in our group immediately rolled their eyes and replied, Romance, please. That girl was in my, what in my day they used to be called a gold digger. You can just tell the look at her that all she's interested in is whatever money he has. And of course, this was quickly followed by someone else in our group reminding us, and appropriately, I might add, that we ought not be so quick to put this on the woman, when in fact the old man might well have been the predator in this scenario. Well, then there was another bit of silence while we all thought about that for a moment, and another theory finally arose. This one, if I remember correctly, came from my wife. Let's not jump to conclusions here. We don't know that they're together together. Those two could have simply been a grandfather and a granddaughter out for a walk. <laughs> and then for my own part, owing perhaps to too many visits over the years to parishioners at local nursing facilities, 
I said, well, you know, it's quite possible, you know, that she's a caregiver, taking her client out for a walk on the beach, holding his hand to help support him as he walks on that wet and unsteady sand. Interesting, isn't it? We'd all seen exactly the same thing on the beach that day. But the perception of what we've seen was, for each one of us, radically different. I suppose, though, that's typical. Each of us, after all, sees the world from our own unique perspective, and thus interprets what we see in our own way. Hang a painting on the wall, for instance, and one person will look at it and see color and form, shadow and light, combined in such a way to give meaning to some aspect of the human experience. While another will step up to the painting, look at it, and, and only see a meaningless mess of colors spread haphazardly upon a canvas. It's a classic case, you see, of, of beauty lying within the eyes of the beholder. But I dare say it applies to more than just art. It applies also in the ways we view life itself. One person, for instance, looking at life as a random scent of, of cruel happenstances, if you will, while another will see it all, even the most difficult parts of life, as part and parcel of a larger plan inspired and nurtured by a loving God. You know, every time I start thinking about things like this, I'm remembering back in high school, my sophomore or junior year, I think, when I took an English class that was entitled Philosophy in Literature. And in this class, we had this huge discussion as to whether life was all predetermined or a matter of fate. In other words, what if what happens to you and I in this life is by design or purely by accident? Now, as someone who was raised to believe that life was a good thing and, and that God had some sort of plan for me, as someone who, even at that early age, was beginning to get a sense of calling in his life, I was actually very struck to learn that many of my classmates, particularly those who had experienced hardship or some kind of tragedy in growing up, were already, at 15 or 16, coming to feel as though nothing really mattered that their lives amounted to little more than a roll of the dice at best, and that their futures really didn't mean all that much at all. I remember that at the time I couldn't even imagine how one could ever see life that way. And yet I found very quickly that there were those who clearly did. And it was a perception that colored their whole attitude towards themselves and their lives. It does indeed seem as though the truth of what one sees is largely determined by how one sees it. And that, friends, is what our text for this morning, taken from the ninth chapter of John's Gospel, is all about. Now, this text that Sarah shared with us earlier is the story of how Jesus heals a man born blind by anointing his eyes with mud that was made uh, from mixing the dirt with his saliva, giving this man sight for the very first time in his life. But as it turns out, this was only the beginning of the story. Ultimately, what this passage of Scripture is really all about 
is the site of everyone else involved. It's pretty interesting, actually. What we discover in what is actually a very rich and detailed and kind of dense story in John's Gospel, we only read about half of it today, is that all these people who were on the periphery of the miracle, the man's neighbors, his family, the townspeople, the Pharisees, and the temple leaders, even Jesus' own disciples, each one of them had either directly or indirectly witnessed something absolutely amazing. A man who everyone recognized as a local beggar, mind you, a local beggar who had been blind since the day he was born, had suddenly met up with Jesus, and now, now he could see. A true miracle, no doubt. And of course, as the message puts it so well, soon the town was buzzing as to the nature of the miracle, so to speak. I don't think he intended the accent, but there you go. For instance, relatives and neighbors of the man immediately started to wonder aloud if this was truly the same blind man begging, or maybe it was just someone who looked like him. Because, I suppose, it's, it's one thing to, if a so-called miracle happens to somebody you don't know, because then you can kind of allow your doubt to take over. You can, you know, cry foul. You can think it, you can be skeptical. But when it's somebody that you know, someone you've known or at least been aware of year after year, your whole life maybe, then the miracle of this healing is not so hard to dismiss. Isn't it interesting, if, as we read that story, to notice that one of the very first things this formerly blind beggar has to do is to convince the townspeople that it is indeed him and that, yes, He'd regained his sight. <laughs> I guess small towns are the same wherever or whenever you are. But that said, though, the response of the townspeople is nothing compared to that of the resident Pharisees. Because in truth of fact, even though the formerly blind beggar had been brought to them so they could themselves bear witness to what had happened, the Pharisees actually paid very little attention to the miracle that he'd received his sight. They chose instead to focus on a, the contention that by restoring this man's sight, this man, Jesus, had broken holy tradition by healing on the Sabbath, of all things. All most of those Pharisees could think about is was that this so-called healer was not of God, for he had gone against the law of Moses. In their minds, Jesus who had already gained quite a reputation for these acts of healing, was nothing more than a common sinner, to say nothing of a rabble-rouser and a huckster, and, might I add, a threat to their authority in the temple. Better, they reasoned, that the miracle worker be put in his place. Although, having said that, it should be noted that the gathered Pharisees were actually divided on this matter. Interesting. There were a few of the Pharisees who actually asked, how can a bad man do miraculous God-revealing things like this? Bottom line, the fact that this beggar had suddenly regained his sight was more than the Pharisees could comprehend. So they, as the song goes, started the investigation, 
to the point of even bringing the man's parents before them to question them. Ostensibly, they wanted to discover if this man had really been born blind, or if maybe this healing was just some kind of fluke. In other words, had there been an actual healing that had taken place? If it had been that been the case, then who did the healing? And who was authorized to do that healing? Now let's not even talk about the fact that if the beggar actually was blind, then according to their point of view, according to the tradition of the time, that blindness most certainly would have been the result of sin, either his own sin or that of his parents. But now, you see, something had happened. Something maybe even, dare I say it, divine. And it didn't fit into the Pharisees' rigid, legalistic mode of sin and righteousness. In fact, if you read on to the end of this ninth chapter of John, you will find that when the investigating Pharisees couldn't get this formerly blind beggar to admit some trick, or at least to confess loyalty to the God of Moses, just before they threw him out of the temple altogether, they shouted at the man, You are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? It's like we said before, though we might see the same things, the truth of what one sees is largely determined by how one sees it. And it's that perception that colors just about everything else in life. And so it was for the Pharisees. They could not see what was happening at all. They could not comprehend that the Spirit of God was working in their midst through the healing acts of Jesus. And so they just closed their eyes to it, refused to see it. Their eyes might have been open but they were as blind as the man they had shunned for being without sight. And by contrast, here's a man who has never been able to see anything up until this moment, and now everything he'd only heard about or imagined, light and color, shapes and detail, was suddenly there before him with crystal clarity. It's no exaggeration to say that this man's life at that very moment began all over again and that he'd never see anything ever again in the same way. Because, you see, everything was now bathed in hope and light. For me, you know, the best part of this story is that all through the aftermath of this healing, people keep coming up to him and asking the same questions. Who did this? How did it happen? This, this, this man... The one who healed you, the one who spit on the ground of all things and made mud and put in your eyes. Was he a prophet, a sinner, or what? How do you see it? And they keep asking and asking. And in the end, all the man can really say, the only thing he can say in that moment is, I don't know. I don't know who he is. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. Now, eventually, we learn that by the end of the chapter, the man does see Jesus, and he believes. But before that happens, there's, first, there's saving grace, the gift of healing born of the love of Jesus. And here's the good news. In that very moment, grace is sufficient. 
You see, that's the thing about Jesus. He comes with saving grace sufficient that we might see ourselves, our lives, and our world, our eternity in a whole new way. Yes, it's true uh, what we said here a couple of weeks back. We are sinners, each and every one of us. But thanks be to God, that's not the only point of view we're given. Because in Christ Jesus, we are also to be seen as recipients of his divine grace. No longer do we need to see ourselves from the perspective of condemnation, but rather as those who have received forgiveness and salvation. Instead of viewing ourselves with judgment and shame, we can begin to see everything through the lenses of hope and abiding love. And that is good news indeed. But here's the thing. This story of the blind beggar's healing also serves to remind us of how easily our own blindness can keep us from the grace of true sight that Christ offers us. The question is, like those Pharisees before us, if we fail to see ourselves from the perspective of Christ, or we would rather cling to our own sacredly held tunnel vision, quick to dismiss God's presence and power in our lives because it doesn't always fit the vision how, how we see or have seen life unfolding. How willing are we to view the movement and rhythm of life as something coming from God and to let our perspective change because of that new awareness? Can we truly let God's light shine the way for us? Maybe you've heard the old story about the man who was outside the lobby of a hotel and he was intently looking towards the ground as if trying to find something. And he'd been there a few minutes and finally the hotel manager comes out the front door and he asks the man, what's wrong here? And the man replies, well, I'm looking for some money that I lost. The hotel manager, of course, wanting to help, asks, well, do you have any idea where you might have lost it? And the man says, oh, I dropped the money inside the hotel lobby. Well, the manager replies, why then are you looking out here? To which the man answers, well, there's more light out here. Right, old story. But it means something here. It reminds us, and I'll say it once again, that how we see things is as important as what we see. And that's especially true when it comes to Jesus. As we continue on this Lenten journey to the cross, you and I are being challenged to look at everything, life and death, sin and salvation, love and hope, from an entirely different perspective than we have before. We are being called to see as Christ sees, even as that point of view takes us inevitably to the cross. The thing is, as we now start to draw nearer to Jerusalem and to the hill of Golgotha, as, as Lent gives way to Palm Sunday, gives way to Holy Week and Good Friday, the way ahead might well seem to be growing darker as we go, particularly as we get to the hill of Golgotha. But you see, from Christ's perspective, there is always going to be ample light for the way. 
And that's what we need right now, is light. The good news, yours and mine, beloved, is that the same graceful Savior who brought sight to a blind beggar is even in this very moment bringing light into our lives, offering new vision to those who are ready and willing to see it for what it is. For those who are willing to look upon the pathway that his light illumines. And for all of those who are willing to follow our Lord for the sake of the gospel. This is grace. Yes, amazing grace. And for it, and for the vision we receive, may our thanks be to God. Amen and amen. And that's the message entitled, What Do You See? It was recorded as part of our March the 14th online service of worship at East Church, to which, by the way, you are always invited to join us live, each and every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock via Facebook Live on our East Congregational Church Facebook page. In these continuing days of pandemic, and as we draw near to Holy Week and Easter, these services have proven to be very valuable we would love it if you could share it with us. And with that, we're at the end of another episode of Love to Tell the Story. This is Michael Lowry, and I do thank you for listening today. And until next time, stay safe, be well, and may God bless you with a great day every day. Talk to you soon.